This is the great speech. The greatest speeches. The big speech. We're the speech guys. We have all four of us on. We're uh, diving in to America. This is Landon, Mike, Matt, and Ross. And we're working through history. We're working through history. Um, We hit Washington. We hit the founding. We hit AOC, Articles of Confederation. And now we're moving on to the next big name, Matt. Who are we talking about? None other than the Thomas Jefferson, or TJ, as his friends call him. Um, So, yeah, Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States. Um, We'll get into more details on his biography later on. Um, But it seemed supremely fitting that on this day, March 4th, which is the day of recording, um, March 4th of 1801, so this is the 220th anniversary of Thomas Jefferson's inauguration speech. All right, so we're going back 220 years to the day. Um, <clears throat> in terms of why Thomas Jefferson and why this speech, uh, one, what better to cel- better way to celebrate the 220th anniversary of his presidency? Um but two, Thomas Jefferson, um, I would say, oh, I mean, Mount Rushmore-wise, he's on Mount Rushmore, uh, the literal Mount Rushmore of presidents. Um, so after Washington, I think he's probably the next main figure uh, that, that just would be an appropriate person to, to cover and would be an appropriate person to really dig into in terms of what is America all about, how did it get started, and what uh, who are the big direction setters? Let us begin with an excerpt from his inaugural address. But every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. We have called by different names brethren of the same principle. We are all Republicans. We are all Federalists. If there can be any among us who would wish to dissolve this union or change its Republican form, Let them stand undisturbed as monuments of safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated, where reason is left free to combat it. I know indeed that some honest men fear that a republican government cannot be strong, that this government is not strong enough. But would the honest patriot, in the full tide of of successful experiment, Abandon a government which has so far kept us free and firm on on the theoretic and visionary fear that this government, the world's best hope, may be possibly want energy to preserve itself? I trust not. I believe this, on the contrary, the strongest government on earth. I believe it the only one where every man, at the call of the law, would fly to the standard of the law and would meet the invasions of the public order as his own personal concern. End quote. All right, so let's uh, let's just dig a little bit into the speech itself and kind of get our initial thoughts, and we'll, we'll kind of dig into a little bit more background um, as we go along here. So, uh, Ross, what were your, um, yeah, just initial thoughts on the speech? Yeah, so I guess first thought when I read the speech was <clears throat> I think Jefferson 
it came across that he really believed in this idea of this Republican government. So we talked about last week that um, Washington maybe wasn't really the the I mean, he was the leader, but he wasn't maybe the philosopher that put it all together, if that makes sense. But just it comes across, I think, just reading the speech um, and kind of some of the excerpts that you read, just how Jefferson really seemed to believe like that this was the answer and this was an awesome thing. Um and I don't, I just, that came across, I guess, like he, he had believed in the idea of it, you know, the behind it. And that, I thought, I thought that came across very strongly. Mike, what do you think? Mike's like that kid in class right now that's like, was kind of like looking away from the teacher. He's like hoping he didn't get called on. <laughs> I, I have nothing. I have nothing. Well, I think, I think like contrasting it last, like to Washington, uh, it's a very political speech. I think, you know, Washington was humble. He didn't want the job. He like was just laying some of the baseline foundations down to like, so as to not offend anyone or, um, I don't know, push it too far. But when reading through, Jefferson, he very much has an opinion. He has a partisan bone about him. And um, even though he says a line that like, you know, we're all Republicans, we're all Federalists, which were the two parties at the time, um, which kind of like has allusions to, you know, we are not. I don't know. What was Obama's 2004 not, speech? Not it was red like states, not blue states, red states, blue United states, states, United yeah. states. Yeah. Like we're all of both parties and you can tell like even in a couple, couple of probably pretty short years, um, there is now a faction of two parties that Jefferson uh, clearly represents one. And he of course painted it in like dreamy 18th century language. Um, but definitely a different tone. Nineteenth century, barely. Barely. All right. Well, so, I think all, uh, of his, all of his training was. Uh, some, something that struck me. I mean, I, I I understand not as well as I should. Sort of the, um, you know, partisan nature, interesting partisan nature of some of his comments. But at the same time, that opening piece of text that that Matt opened with. But every difference of opinion is not a difference of principle. I mean, it's that statement in itself, like um, Landon said, it's sort of elegant um, and true at the same time. It reminds me of a conversation I was having with some other friends over Christmas. Um, this idea that it that that sentence comes off as very um conciliatory very trying to bring people together right because with the example of abortion right pro life versus pro choice it's not as if one side or the other hates babies or hates women right there 
the principles which guide them are both present. It's it's sort of a matter of degree there, right? And maybe if that were recognized more often in the same way Jefferson is sort of getting at here, maybe we could make more progress. So that's that's just one sort of bit that stuck out to me. Yeah, I mean, in terms of whether or not, I mean, you're kind of, we're kind of getting at like the question, did he really mean that? Or is it like the, we are all Republicans, we are all federalists, you know, did he mean it or is it a line? And I think, I don't know, I, I think with our current just general skepticism that, that seems to pervade like modern America, um, I don't know, which, which maybe it's, there, it, there, it's also, there's also a misplaced nostalgia for, kind of old America, too, um, that, that's equally naive. Hold on, but hold on, hold on, hold on. What do you mean by nostalgia and old America, and did he mean it or not? So uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that we're currently very skeptical, which it seemed like, Landon, like you were you were like, yeah, like this is a partisan speech, and he was just kind of saying that to appease people. Mike seemed to think he was more, like, authentic, Um with the the idea of that, you know, difference in opinion is not a difference in principle. What I'm saying is that we need to avoid the errors of just modern skepticism because that seems to be the prevailing attitude of the time, but we also need to avoid the nostalgia that I think we, all four of us, tend to fall into with less, like, you know, worshipping at the feet of George Washington or some of these older figures, you know, because, like... Right. I don't know, they're like, yeah, they're not, certainly not above, like, just the human desire for partisanship and, you know, kind of uh, falling in love with their own opinions, too, so. Um, right. Yeah, I think it's a complex situation here in America, and, uh, you know, why don't we, why don't we dig into a little bit of, like, who Thomas Jefferson was at this point, like, where did he kind of grow up and come from? Just to like get an idea of where he is at and then also just some of his relationships before he was president because I think that's gonna, yeah, just understanding the American climate might be, might be helpful for kind of tackling that question in terms of how authentic he is with his like call for unity. Hey, can I add one other note on the inauguration speech? Um, he hated formalities and he actually showed up in the, for the speech in like his plain clothes. Can you imagine <laughs> a president? That'd be my kind of president for sure, just showing up in, you know, his uh, business casual. sweatpants. It's going to be incredible. <laughs> wait, wait. That, Everyone that, loves my sweatpants. That was that, a pretty good that, impression. That's true. I, I don't know. I just pictured Jefferson as, like, this French-bound yeah. no, intellectual – Savant, true, yeah. but given that he was also like Mr. Agrarian, um, I don't know, Renaissance man, like that doesn't really fit with like the prim and proper Washington mold. So I can both see the plain clothes and it's also very surprising. He also dropped his horse off at the stable himself. He didn't let the valet take it. <laughs> Probably just a photo op, if you ask me. Look at me dropping my horse off. Probably rolled up his sleeves and put on a construction hard hat, too. All right. Well, Matt, I'm actually, I think that's a good thought, like, to kind of dive into his life a little bit. Um, 
This and, this is like oh. Quentin Tarantino style. Zoo going back. <laughs> Let's piece it all together. Well, I just think it's interesting, like, I don't know, something that kind of stuck out for me, just looking into Jefferson's, I guess, earlier life, is I do think not only did it shape strongly kind of what he what we said about like kind of my, what I commented on, I felt like he like he believed in this ideal um, of the Republican government. And I think it's also kind of a little bit of a contrast then to George Washington, who we talked about in the last episode. So just a couple of things that kind of stuck out to me when looking like trying to look at Jefferson and what formed him, if you will. Um, so he was born in Virginia, the third of 10 children, but he um, started education pretty young. So he became... Um, he started an English school, he, he, an English run school at age five. And at age nine, he began attending a local school running, uh, run by a minister. But he also at, around that time began studying Latin, Greek and French. So you've got George Washington, who literally didn't know other languages, which might have caused a war. And then you've got Jefferson before the age of 10 studying numerous foreign languages. Um, he entered the College of William and Mary at age 16 to study mathematics, metaphysics, and philosophy. Um, he read people like John Locke, Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton. Um, he was recognized as a man of exceptional ability. Uh, he attended a regular dinner party where, where they discussed politics and philosophy. Um, so I don't know, I'm just trying to kind of like paint a picture here of like he was pretty well educated. So I'm not saying he was bred for um, the presidency, but these these ideas of education and reading and philosophy and government, these weren't new things to him. Um, later on in college, he he, uh, was, he studied more French, more Greek. He played the violin. I mean, just to paint a picture, he played the violin. Um, so I, that, that just really jumped out to me that like education, reading the classics, that was all a huge part of his kind of formative years. Um and then I think he ended up studying, he ended up becoming a lawyer, a lawyer, I think, as well. So I guess just kind of in comparison to our George Washington, who, um, you know, kind of more of a self-taught practical reader, that definitely would not be the bill of a Thomas Jefferson, who was very well educated, probably very intelligent. Um, but yeah, um, again, I don't want to use the phrase like bread for this, but yeah. Um, and then just an interesting fact we were talking about earlier, I mean, at age 21, he inherited a 5,000 acres of land, which just seems like a huge parcel of land. And I'm sure it was huge um, in the 1700s as well. So I feel like he has the more classical fit to um, at least those formative years, kind of the educated, intelligent, philosophy minded guy, which I would imagine had a big influence on why he was pushing so hard for his ideals, um, kind of like we said, kind of in the first not first political party. I don't know if you can say that, but sort of. Do you guys think that the more education you have makes you more partisan? I would or, say. Or also consider the other extreme of it. Extremely little education makes you more partisan. So we need just the right amount of education to avoid partisanship. There's kind of a nonpartisan window of education. Interesting. I suppose. I think, um, 
I don't know if it would necessarily be like the degree of education. I would say higher degrees of education might make you more prone to being like an ideologue potentially. Cause like, which, which would go ahead, go ahead, finish off. I was just going to say, cause it, it gives you this, this like very long opportunity to really immerse yourself in a stream of ideas. And I would imagine if you're not careful, like you could very easily like, um, just fall too deeply in love with certain ideas and, and like not let, not let yourself deviate, you know, or not question those. Um, so yeah, I think there's something to that. Maybe not partisanship, but I, yeah, perhaps ideal, you know, I just falling into ideology. I think education today is also different like than back then. Like we're so specialized. So, um, like I have a graduate degree, right? But at the same time, like it was like my, my degree path was physical therapy. So it was very like specialized and I studied these things and this is what you get good at. Where like, I mean, what is this? So I mean, Jefferson studied mathematics, metaphysics and philosophy. So like if you're a math major today, you're maybe taking like philosophy 101. You're not like actually studying them deeply, let alone the ability to like produce new ideas in that field. Um, so I feel like just education, like a higher level education just seems different today than it maybe was back then and how specialized we are. Yeah, I think. I think when you think of like the founders and whatever brilliance was in the constitution and the opportunistic forming of government on a new continent and separating from British colonial power, I don't know. I always have that, you know, there are 50 guys in a room, all like super classically, classic liberally educated on, you know, all the, ups and downs of Greek and Roman um, Western civilization kind of building upon whatever, you know, freedom meant at the time. And, you know, we learned that that really wasn't Washington. Um, he tried um, and, and got some of it, but I think that kind of the founders were brilliant is mostly embodied in Jefferson's like, diversity of thought and study and how deep he went in at least several areas of um, I don't know, topics. How did he get from the farm to Washington? Anyone know? Uh, via France. I think he, I mean, he, he kind of clawed his way up the political ladder you know, was the local rep to the Virginia House of Burgessie, Bourgeoisie, Burgesses, however you say that. See, Virginia state governor, and then um, Continental Congress appointed him to head over to France and basically be a part of Ben. Ben Franklin was like the leader of the treaty that settled the dust after the revolution. Jefferson was the young whippersnapper right-hand man to Franklin. Um, so he, as we all know from the Hamilton uh, musical, was, uh, you know, in Paris for most of um, that in-between period. 
but what they were working on were like treaties with Britain, most of the European world. Um, and so when he got back from that, I think he was over there five or six years, a uh, pretty natural appointment to be Washington's secretary of state, which nobody really knew what all the roles of the cabinet were, were meant to do, but secretary of state being the foreign relations, um, with, with other powers that be, um, Jefferson had all the contacts besides Franklin and Adams for, um, foreign negotiation and, and relations that got him back to DC as they, as we now call it. So kind of piecing together his, uh, I guess length or not lengthy necessarily, but, uh, Certainly diverse education with his exposure to public uh, negotiation and policy and, you know, foreign interactions and all that. Like what uh, what were his relationships with other Americans like or like, guess, the other founding fathers and like what what kind of set him apart to kind of give a speech that is, I think, fairly partisan, so to speak, or, or certainly like has to address partisan issues at this point. So, like, what are his relationships like with the other founding fathers and, and who are his friends and enemies and, and whatnot at this point in time? Sorry, really quick question. What, so what was he doing during the American Revolution? Like, where was he at? He's chilling Hold in France. On. Sipping on whatever French people sip on. Yeah, I'm showing he's he's going over. He wasn't sent over to France until '84, oh. which we know was towards the end. So Franklin did a majority of the negotiations of the plenipotentiary. Okay, sorry, Negoti- I got it. You got it. You found yeah, it. Yeah. Okay. At the start of the revolution, he was a colonel and named commander of the Albemarle County Militia in 1775, but then elected to the Virginia House of Delegates in September 1776. For nearly three years, he assisted with the Constitution and was proud of his bill of establishing religious freedom, blah, blah, blah. So it looks like he wasn't doing much fighting. He was just already politicking a little bit. Sounds like Ross just uncovered Jefferson's dirty past. Yeah. <laughs> He's oh, a draft dodger! <laughs> He, yeah, he really was. He, uh, I mean, when Benedict Arnold invaded Virginia, Jefferson looks like hung out a couple counties over with friends and never really like took up the fight. He was also in France during the French Revolution when they, uh, stormed Bastogne, I had read. Oh, that's an interesting fact. So. War kind of followed him. He didn't ever really partake. More of the intellectual on the sideline, which sometimes I'm sure yeah. would be easier. I know I, I did read he, he did condemn the violence, but certainly was was for the principles. Um, but yeah, I know oh, there the was a complex. There was a complex. Yeah, the French Revolution. Um, but yeah, kind of a complex relationship there. And I know that some of his enemies tried to pin um, pin some of the violence of the French Revolution and kind of you know try to basically trip him up in that. 
Um, yeah. Kind of paints um, him as like this revolutionary person, but yeah. I have one other tidbit. All right, James Madison. We're not. I don't know if we're going to go deep on him. Did he write most of the Constitution, the Federalist Papers? We know off the top of our head. He's pretty brilliant too, but he's kind of. So Hamilton. Hamilton wrote. So I think there are. And this is from memory. I came across this earlier today. I think there were eighty-five Federalist Papers, and I think Hamilton wrote fifty-one. Madison and John Jay. Yeah, between the two of them, they wrote the rest, I guess. Um, yeah. But it sounds like Hamilton, at least from the, the one source I read on that, um, seemed to do most of the work with the Federalist Papers. But Madison and John Jay were, were intimately uh, involved with that as well. Um, but so I think Ed, Madison was were Madison and Jefferson were, were pretty close allies during this, this period. Right. So it's interesting that Madison and Hamilton wrote the papers, so they – I they at least worked on that project together. Um, they might have been on, I believe they're on different sides. Hamilton's on Washington's side, generally brought up in the world by Washington. But one thing uh, Jefferson was working on, him and Madison in 91, while Jefferson was Secretary of State, mind you, started and founded their own newspaper, the National Gazette. Um, and this paper in Philadelphia, um, was a, a political puff piece paper, 100% partisan and super anti-federalist, pro-democratic Republican partisan newspaper. It lasted just like two or three years and all of the articles were written pseudo, pseudo anonymously, pseudo pseudonymously um many of them written by madison and jefferson themselves but i know we you know we say stuff's partisan today but even the founders were slinging mud started their own papers um even washington came out and said one time that like he hated the national gazette because they they threw some punches um the original with, Fox uh, News. With that. It was, it, you know, we'll get to the, the part of it. I, I kind of, my, my, uh, bent on this research was the politics of, uh, what we're working with here. And Jefferson was involved there. And the Fairness Doctrine was not in force. 1791. Um, didn't try that experiment. So it was one sided. What not, is the Fairness Doctrine? Uh, we'll have to look it up generally passed in the thirties or forties or fifties to ensure that every single news was controversial topic had to be presented both sides. If it was on air, definitely on air, maybe in print, um, lasted about 30, 40 years. It was overturned in 87 under Reagan because it was obviously kind of doesn't uphold the first amendment to say whatever you want and so in 87 now we you could be very partisan in the media again and from that once that uh hole was open fox news was started rush started taking off but for a a good portion of the 20th century um the law was on the books that you had to present controversial both sides of controversial topics 
which I think made things a bit more serene than we know them today. Yeah, I just opened up the Wikipedia page for it. That's, uh, man, that's interesting. I never yep. was even uh, aware of that. Yeah, I mean, we've dabbled with uh, mild censorship or at least policing of thought um, before. I think it would sound, you know, if we tried to do that today, I think it'd sound fascist or, you know, whatever. Um, and it would sell probably a lot fewer papers if the New York Times and Fox News were always presenting the other side. Um, who, who would want to watch that or read that? Um, when you can be built up with entrenching yourself in your own worldview. Um, but Jefferson started it all, so we can blame him for that. So what were the what were the prevailing issues that so it seems like so we have Jefferson versus Hamilton is kind of this big like yeah. central yeah. central fight, so to speak. Um yeah, how did that manifest itself? And right. like how did he how did he carry that out in his presidency too? So like did right. he like we're talking about his inaugural address, which is kind of like what he wants to bring. Like what did he actually bring too? So like right. Yeah, how did that play out? Yeah, so a little quiz game. Um there are two parties, early America. Anybody know them? top of their head? Go. Come on, Mike. Hey, what? What are Federalists and Republicans and the Democrats? There were the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. Yeah, I thought that was too obvious because we just mentioned it in the notes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's all right. It was the dramatic right. pause was for the audience to think of their answer. We're, That's what that was. We're starting at the top. So let's go through it. And and these are generally the leader of the Federalists is Hamilton. The leader of the Democratic Republicans is Jefferson. Okay. I'm curious, and there might not be a right answer, but let's hit the high points and see which party is which today. Um, because, like, Democratic Republicans, you know, that's both parties today. Like, are they one of them now or two? So the Federalists were ruled by the wealthy class. The Democratic Republicans were ruled by the people. <laughs> Dare I ask which party is which now? I would say four years ago. No, I would say five years ago. <laughs> five years ago, I would say the ruling class would be the Republicans and the the people would be the Democrats. But Trump kind of had this like populist appeal, so to speak, yeah. that I think murkies that water a little bit. Right? I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's clear post Trump. Yeah, I think each side uh, would pretty squarely. I mean, who wants to like be in favor of rule by the wealthy class, right? Like, no side's going to claim that anyway. Um, so Hamilton concentrating power in the federal government. Or sharing power with state governments. I will. I'll, I'll chime in. I think federal, pro-federal government, definitely a uh, Democrat Party thing. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. That one seems pretty. 
cut and dry. I don't, I don't, I see it as negative. I'm a little bit of a keep things as local as possible kind of guy. But I, I think most Democrats would like pretty proudly say like rule as much from the top and for all, um, in a positive beat. Um, this one's interesting. A republic. Hamilton was a republic led by well-educated elite. Jefferson, the Democratic Republicans, were a democracy of virtuous farmers and tradespeople. Where, where's the minute? Where's the nuance there in between the two parties? Well-educated elite, virtuous farmers and tradespeople. What do you mean? Where's the nuance? Like, where's the right answer, or which one? Um, which one like it, the, does it does it fit into a party today? Yeah, I feel like party it's party line still. I think you're going for the back and forth, which is interesting because yeah, the the previous question it seems like in modern politics a more democratic idea is more pro federal government, the Republican not so much, but on that specific issue it seems kind of switched. Um, typically, you I think you think of the kind of rural people. Going very Republican in the the wealthy the the elite the city dwellers going more Democratic, which sounds like it was kind of yeah. yeah if, if we're playing the game, yeah, it's like yeah, you can't pin either one specifically to current policies because they seem to be switching places. Yeah, yeah. Um, this one's tough. Federalists were pro Britain. Jeffersonian re- Democratic Republicans were pro France. We don't uh, care too much there anymore. Yeah, who cares about France? Yeah. And then the last one I'll say, I think if I was summing everything up, and I think books have been written about it, um, but Hamilton and the Federalists were an emphasis on manufacturing uh, and... You know, essentially cities, the economy based on manufacturing and shipping, um, needing a strong central bank. And the Jeffersonian Republican Democratic crew was an economy based on farming and agriculture and plainer people. Do those clearly stack into Democrats or Republicans today? That one might be the murkiest for me. Simply think it's murky? I think so, because, one, I don't understand the role of the center of, like, you know, the Fed and, like, I guess what we would call a central bank type of figure. I don't understand that very well, and certainly not how it breaks down party line-wise. Um, but in terms of, like, Industry versus agrarian, or like like city. If if the question city versus country, like obviously city is more democrat, country is more republican. But in terms of like, um, you know, industry versus, I don't know. I mean, we don't almost don't even. And just because farming has just changed, I would say drastically <laughs> since this time. Like, it's not even you know. There's hardly even a, a conflict between agrarian versus industry, just because everyone's pretty much industry at this point. It's just a matter if you're an industry in a big city or a small town. Right. Yeah. yeah. I guess that one seems pretty murky to me. Yeah. I think uh, the summary point on this would be 
Um, general historical consensus is Hamilton's vision for the economic structure of America won out. Uh, Jefferson and his agrarian view definitely lost. Um, I'd be interested to hear if anybody has a supporting point for what Jefferson tried to do and, and came up short in his time as president. Um, and then secondarily, I think the point is like looking at how the parties were in 1800 and trying to back into them today. Um, I think, I think the lines crisscross and the, some of the things we were fighting about then, which is mostly federal power of this new government versus states' rights power, um, that can certainly, I think, is playing out in parties, but issue by issue, um, not perfectly clear. Um, I think the country has changed in a couple centuries and the parties have evolved, but, uh, kind of fascinating to see the, what they were, uh, arguing over. Let's, uh, now that we've kind of got a good idea of that debate, how did Jefferson implement this? Like, what did his presidency look like? Love it. Great question, Matt. Can the president buy land? That's, of course, that was on everyone's minds in the hot summer of 1803 when people couldn't get enough air conditioning in their houses. Um, we got Louisiana Purchase, of course, big uh, pillar of Jefferson's presidency. Um, when we're talking Louisiana, folks, we're not talking about shrimp down on the coast, all right? Louisiana was bigger than that back in the day. We're talking shrimp on the coast all of the way up to Canada, west to the Rockies, and east to the Mississippi. That's Louisiana back in the day. Spain sold it to France in 1800. In 1802, um, James Monroe and Robert Livingston were sent to negotiate with little man Napoleon. We're talking about 827,000 square miles for $15 million at famously three cents per acre. You might be thinking, wow, that's a great deal. Boy, has inflation really hurt us. Okay, let me quiz you on this, numbnuts. <laughs> in today's, <laughs> in today's money, how much do you guys think the Louisiana purchase would go for per acre, accounting for inflation. So how much would it cost to buy, like, half of the country? Yeah. My day job is running the, the Zillow of farmland and valuing land digitally. Um, I think the average land prices right now are, you know, some of the Louisiana Purchase is ranch land. It wasn't tillable. We needed John Deere and the steel plow to come along to make it valuable. So this is pre-improvements. I'd put it at, you know, 4000 bucks an acre in today's dollars. Right. I'm not asking you what the actual market value is. I'm talking straight $0.03 cents per acre adjusted for inflation. Oh. Any other modified guesses? 
60 cents per acre is what it would go for in today's money. So you're you're saying even then he got a heck of a deal. Yes. Yeah, gotcha. So So, the inflation, yeah, gosh, that's nuts. um, That's a better deal than I thought it was. (laughs) If, as Landon, you know, the... I said average land cost, assume it's $8,000 a per acre across the whole thing. So he paid about 1.3 million percent less than what it was worth. Unbelievable. Um, hey. That, so why did but, Napoleon agree to that? Like that seems, I mean, if there's uh, ever a really good deal on one side, somebody either got screwed or had something else they wanted, he, right? Like, he was having some issues in some of his other colonies that he wanted money for wars. He wanted to feed the war machine. Little man syndrome, I guess he had. So he wanted to feed the war machine. Why did Jefferson want, want it so bad? Or I guess not so bad. Maybe it was that cheap. Because like, sure, I'll as Stephen Ambrose once said, the story, and he said, He had a vision for America, extending this idea of liberty and democracy from sea to shining sea, or something like that, if you watch the documentary Lewis and Clark and the Core of Discovery. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think it was basically as simple as that. You know, he liked America, and he wanted to see its ideals expand. Um literally from from coast to coast. So um so how do you figure out what's going on there? You gotta send an expedition. You gotta send men with the right stuff. Lewis and Clark. Meriwether Lewis, William Clark, and about thirty or forty other guys. <laughs> um we're talking two years no one this was this was sort of a controversial aspect of Jefferson's presidency kind of similar to the whole Apollo project where we look back very excited about it, by it i mean who isn't watching the lewis and clark deck documentary once a year just to kind of sharpen their knowledge um but back then yeah it was it was a little more tenuous. Like, why are we spending this money? There are plenty of issues here on the home front to worry about. Um, but Jefferson devoted about $2,000 to this project, or he got Congress to. Um, and he uh, kind of took Meriwether Lewis under his wing for a couple of years in order to train him in this project. His Jefferson's library had more books on the West than any other president or any other place in the United States. Um, he believed that there were woolly mammoth Indians who spoke Welsh, mountains of salt. So he was very intrigued by uh, by this idea here. Um, hey, don't forget, though, on the topic of expeditions, the Thomas Freeman, Peter Custis expedition, you know, they get left out, but they were also, also in there. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of one way that you see Jefferson's beliefs extending into the real world. Any questions on Louisiana Purchase? Not specifically, because I feel like you're going to ask me another hard question about what something cost. But <laughs> um, so I feel like that kind of, in a way, fits his like dreamer persona a little bit. Like 
right? We don't know what's out there. Let's go find out type thing, which we, I mean, we talked about a little bit, like he had these ideals, like what other, I guess I don't know a ton of, other than the Louisiana Purchase, I don't know a ton about his presidency. So like, what else did he do? Like, why else is he, is, is that why he's on Mount Rushmore? Well, the literal Mount Rushmore, probably. Um, I got one more item. <laughs> we got the Chesapeake Leopard Affair and the Embargo Act. This was not the highlight of his presidency. Um, what we're talking about here, this was the end of his second term, British hunting for deserters. Jefferson issued a call for a boycott on British goods. As such, Congress passed the Non-Importation Acts. The British ship Chesapeake fired on the U.S. Um, rather than going to war, uh, the Embargo Acts would pass. Basically, nothing really happened of this, and Jefferson just looked very weak. So, those are the only <laughs> two notable aspects of Jefferson's presence. All right, there there you have it, folks. He did two things uh, in his eight years. Um, One thing, one thing I'll add that I think is interesting and at least gives some nuance to, I think, the modern criticism and like I think the modern like just criticism of of, uh, Jefferson as a slave owner. Right. Like that's not a good thing. Um, One is that he, well, I guess the, the only thing that I think is, is an interesting nuance is that he did, uh, pass an act that abolished the importation of slaves. Um, so didn't abolish slavery. Like we were a long way away from that. Um, I guess there's, there's some, it's kind of up in the air in ter- like from historians in terms of what he ideally would have liked to do uh, with slavery. I guess there's some folks that suggest he he would he would like to see slaves gradually um, freed um, in some sort of uh, base, yeah basically just implement some sort of process to to gradually free them. Um, but that I guess he never really acted on it, and yeah, so that's kind of up in the air. Um, but he did do that, which I think is at least yeah, I guess at least gives some nuance to him as a slave owner, which obviously is like a really bad thing. So yeah, just kind of a a random fun tidbit that I noticed with his presidency. So to bounce back on that, Landon, on the top of his slaveholding, the only slaves he freed were his children with his mistress Sally upon his death. Like, man, that's crazy. Even Washington uh, released all of his slaves upon his death, I believe. So his children were his slaves for some time? That's crazy. You guys with me? I saw that in the notes. I was interested by that, too. I'd never really given that any thought. Like, were his children his slaves? Literally. Here's another tidbit. I wish I would have opened my bit with it. Then I would have sounded like I had more uh, depth. His election was the first peaceful transfer of power between opposing parties in Western history. Now, you might be thinking, wait a second, Mike, Jefferson's the third president. Well, except it didn't really count Washington to Adams because uh, Washington was independent, so... 
there you have independent, it. Yeah. And Adam, yeah. yeah, from what I understand, Adams and Washington were both slight, like, I would say more, governed more federalistly. So, yeah, I guess they were, they were very much on the same page with things, too. But, but yeah, I mean, Washington wasn't independent. Um, but, yeah, no, that is an interesting, yeah. That is, that's so fascinating. I mean, to even speculate, I mean, we're still, like, essentially the first mid-century modern democracy. So, like... What would have been like? I I don't know. I guess I guess I guess I'm just wondering like what would have second place been? Like what was the next closest possible political party power transfer of? Are you talking about like within like other countries? Like what country? Yeah, that seems like that. that Like who was the next one? Yeah, it seems like a hard thing to Google. Like if we were the first and only what would have been like second place where it's like, well, there was this skirmish or a riot or a minor overthrow between parties when this kind of democratic thing happened in, uh, you know, some mid-major empire of Germany. But like it was still like mostly all monarchies or non-democratic rule. So, huh. I don't know. That's a fascinating fact. Yeah, and it's, gosh, I guess it uh, it makes me think that we just take for granted that. Um, yeah. Like just the the nature of our country, you know, and that at one point America was like a very fragile experiment, and it's like, and something like this happened, you know. There's there's a transition to power, and we're the same country still, you know. Um, yeah, that is yeah. Very, uh, yeah, very humbling thing to to think about. Yeah, we could quick Google it, but I remember it's like, yeah, I mean, we're not promised it. Like, clearly, it can be pretty fragile, and it even harkens back to what Ben Franklin. Maybe it's myth, but when he walked out of the Continental Congress ratifying the Constitution, and they got it ironclad. You know, someone came up to him and asked him because they were debating, like, will we be a federalist society or more state run? Kind of will the House of Representatives model win out or will the Senate model win out? Um, They asked him, like, what kind of government do we have, Mr. Franklin? And he responded with, like, um, a constitutional republic, ellipses, dot, 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 if you can keep it you know, kind of emphasizing the fickleness even right out of the gate that not something promised or guaranteed to last perhaps even a couple decades at that point. I do just find it interesting, you know, reading the different texts from, I mean, just from this, these obviously just first few presidents, how much they were concerned well, I mean, no, in this specific instance, there was concerns of civil war, not, I mean, not even necessarily just because of the slavery issue, but just because of this, you know, tremendous thing that had never taken place, this uh, tr- peaceful transfer of power between uh, between leaders of different parties, like, uh, um so, I mean, that, that a realization, I think, should be a consoling 
right, that to some extent that people are having the same conversations today. Are we going to break out in civil war? It's, um, I suppose at some level it means that, well, that's good because that means that people, people care and, you know, people are, people are trying. So I know there's a lot of negative things to be said for it too, but try, try to be positive. And like to contrast, like they care. I would say a large, you know, some faction don't feel like they have a voice, but like, you can care, you can fight, like, we are only ever passing things at, like, a 51 or 2 or 58% majority, and it's always close, and you have to show up. I I don't know, you contrast that with, like, communist China, like, I don't know, the citizens just heard, hearing some anecdotal stories, like, you don't have that much of an active process and what the Chinese government does. Like there's a difference between who rules the country and who is a participant in it. And you kind of just go along with the flow. You don't like get out of order. There's no way you're going to like probably rise to the top and run the country. Um, and you're censored and you are a, true subject of the state and they've like you know embraced that as part of their curriculum they don't think anything's particularly wrong with it or some majority of them don't and you know we still very much have a say and want to control it for our own um you know our own sentiments about what government should be and that's still reassuring is, so this sort of begins to digress, but hey, that's what podcasts are about. So I wonder what some scholar would have to say about why or why not the Soviet Union, communist Soviet Union, did not last, but communist China will. Or maybe it won't, but certainly it seems to have more going for it than Soviet Union did. I would have just pure conjecture there. This sounds like would be a great final exam question, like for some (laughs) college class. I think they definitely just have like more people would be at least a part of the answer. I don't know if that plays into the significance of maybe some of strategic political decisions they've made along the way the last 50 years. I also don't know if China has run against the opposition as hard as Russia did. Because, like, all of Europe was pretty hard against Russia. Like, the United States certainly was. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I'm just not sure if there's been nearly as much pressure on China from the rest of the world. That's fair. Also, I think there's some faction of Russians that, like, want to be Western and European, and, like, Russia's chip on its shoulder is that, like, it's excluded from the Western cool kids table, whereas, like, China has no interest in being a part of the Western cool kids table, and they're just, like, you know, 
for a very long time, they were a different part of the world and a different culture completely and hasn't ever felt a need to be a part of the table until Nixon kind of convinced them to open up and come be a world trading economic superpower. Anybody know what Jefferson thought of China? I don't know. (laughs) Did did China exist yet? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Have you ever heard the joke? Have you hold on? Have you ever heard the Chinese joke? A bunch of uh, China Chinese people were having dinner in Paris, and um, you know, asked the across the table like you know what did what did you think about you know how we handled the french revolution and chinese guy was like i don't i don't think you'll know for at least another hundred years how it like what it meant like it's still far too early to tell what that meant like just a long history of you know perhaps somewhat of like the asian eastern culture is like they're in it for the long haul and these little wars and tribulations like that the Western world does, they kind of see as like petty spats that they're, we're not playing the long game. Speaking of long game, this doesn't have that much to do with the long game. Um, so with, with what we're, with what we're talking about, uh, well, I think an interesting quote by Woodrow Wilson. Um, to be honest, I can't, I don't know the context for this quote, but he called Thomas Jefferson a great man, but not a great American, um, just due to his, what he thought were, were extreme, uh, uh, I guess, Democrat, Democratic Republican views or extreme, um, anti-federalist views, um, does that have any bearing? Is it justified in any way, shape, or form? Just knowing how Alexander Hamilton's view seems to have won the day, seems to have, like, that that's kind of what we understand as America. Would a more radically, uh, I don't know, state-emphasized government um, have fallen apart? And is that critique justified? Sorry, can you make that, can you say just, just the quote one more time? So Woodrow Wilson said that Thomas Jefferson was a great man, but not a great American. Hmm. I've, I've got some thoughts off the bat here. Yeah, I have um, some too. Leave to it bring off, us Mike. home, potentially. Um, you know... I just really don't see how the core American ideal could be closer to federalism versus Democratic Republican. Um, And I say it because of this, because, I mean, how could there be any example of strong government than being a colony, right? I mean... With the idea of, hey, if you've got a really strong central government, they're going to exert their force over a larger area, right? Um, but instead, you know, we obviously decide, no, we want to rule ourselves 
something more like subsidiarity, something more like states' rights. Um, so I find it really ironic that, um, you know, as we were sort of discussing, federalists in this sense, modern-day people on the left who are about strong government, like, how is that diff- – how is uh, people in Washington – going too far and telling how people in other states to live, how exactly is that different than the force that Great Britain exerted on the colonies, right? Where you're, you're imposing a certain kind of rule, which is inappropriate for those people. So I disagree with Woodrow Wilson. I vote no. Like what Mike said, I'm also going to disagree with Woodrow simply because, I mean, he wrote the Declaration of Independence. So, like, <laughs> I, I, how can you say, I mean, like, that's like saying yeah. James Naismith wasn't basketball. I don't know. Like, it's just like he wrote the, I don't know. That's my thought. Less, so maybe Hold less on. intellectual than Mike's, but that was my first reaction. Say the quote one more time. So Wilder Wilson said, Thomas Jefferson was a great man, but not a great American. Well, I mean, he's kind of a draft dodger. He didn't help out with the American Revolution. He He wrote the document, hid in the country with his friends, and then didn't help out until we needed him in Paris to, like, get Franklin over the line for the treaty. That was like a mark against him that came up tonight. And then, like, if we would have done the whole states' rights agrarian thing, like, we would not have won World War One or World War Two. Like, I don't think 20th century America would have been a thing at all had Jefferson's vision won over Hamilton's. We would be, you know, Canada or, or I don't know, some some aspects of Brazil. Like, yeah, you know, we're the same population as Brazil, somewhat of similar time frames of economic development. But they didn't create, they didn't get as quickly to like the industrial engine that we built around an economy. So, yeah. I can What's see what your you're answer? Saying. Yes or no? A great America. I, I get, I get, I can see where Woodrow's coming from. Lesser, lesser than Mike and Ross. Yeah, I would, uh, I think. There are certainly valid criticisms, and I think there are certainly things that the central government does that we actually appreciate. You know, like the EPA, like, all right, that's a good thing. Now that we have all this industrial stuff, like, we don't want, you know, crap in our water and, you know, dirt in the sky. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I think that the, to say that Thomas Jefferson would necessarily be against any sort of intervention is, uh, 
to it's kind of it's kind of an anachronism, you know, kind of putting things on him that he didn't have to deal with. So I'm going to firmly rebuke Wildrow Wilson. Thomas Jefferson is a great American. He is a great man. Um, but uh, but yeah, definitely kind of got a lot of partisanship rolling. It seems like. And um, and it's not like it, he was the the only person who was involved with that either. You know, you, I imagine that's probably a, a very natural, um, yeah, a very natural thing um, to have evolved in a country like ours. So, one quick comment: I do think, just like thinking through, this is going to be important stuff. Maybe not next episode, but the the ones that'll follow, like. States' rights versus federalism, Kansas-Nebraska Act, Missouri Compromise, just like the tinderbox of of America's journey a couple decades down the road is mm-hmm. the direct result of this political grind of should federalism went out or states' rights and for much of the South um, – you know, that's going to going to be called upon soon. So I think we'll get there. Good foreshadowing to end this week's edition of the speech guys.